You're listening to a podcast from St. Barts. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Well, it'd be great to have your Bibles or your Bible apps still open at John chapter 8 as we continue in our mini-series of Fruit of the Spirit. So last week we considered the aspect of the fruit of patience, this week gentleness and, uh, sorry, this week, this week gentleness and next week joy. You might notice, just as a word of introduction, that in your translation of the Bible, when it comes to chapter 8, you might notice that it has a note or it's in italics there, and it might say something along the lines of the earliest of manuscripts don't include these verses. And that's true that these verses are not in the earliest of manuscripts, but actually what we find is that this section and these verses have been accepted and received as a real event as authentic words of Jesus from very early on in the life of the church, and that's why we have them in our Bibles today. So that is just a word of introduction. On the back of the news, you will have some uh, sermon points as well and translation there in English, Jinka, Simplified Chinese and Korean, so make use of those if that's of help to you. But right now, let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you please be at work this day that you would fill us with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And particularly, we pray this day, that gentleness would grow and flourish in our lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his recent book, Dominion, the British historian Tom Holland makes really the compelling case that many of the values that we hold so central, so dear in the Western world, are not the result of the Enlightenment or scientific progress or modern ways of thinking, but are actually the transformative and enduring legacy of one person, the one person who is Jesus. As you read through Tom Holland's book, it really is a sobering reminder of just how brutal and how cruel the ancient world was. The ancient ancient world was brutal and cruel in the treatment of women, in its abuse of slaves. Infants, especially females, were regularly abandoned or drowned. Those with disabilities were rejected or worse. The poor and the weak had few, if any, rights. In the ancient world, humility and kindness were not virtues. Retaliation was assumed to be the proper and even required response. Power and wealth were to be pursued, they were paramount. Fidelity in marriage, for men, was considered weakness. In a culture in which the future belonged to the strong... Christianity swept in gently with a transformative and enduring legacy. Now, don't get me wrong, Christianity and Christians are not without their faults. Christianity has not always been gentle. Christians have long and perpetually failed to live up to the ideals of the one whom we follow. But the movement that overcame the cruelty and brutality of the ancient world began not by the force of a conquering emperor, but by the gentle approach of a cross-bearing king. 
Christians pursue gentleness. We pursue gentleness because the Lord we follow is gentle. John Swinton puts it like this. God, the creator and maker of all that we know, is gentle. It is not that God acts gently or happens to prefer gentleness. God is gentle. The Spirit is at work transforming us and shaping us in his likeness. That we would be gentle with people, family, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would be gentle with problems, even loving our enemies. That we would be gentle with purpose, even in our proclamation. Always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Patience is steadfastness, trusting in God's purposes and timing. Gentleness is deploying our power lightly, trusting in God's ways. And so from moment to moment, from encounter to encounter, one conversation to the next, from email to email, from issue to the next issue, do we deploy our power with gentleness or aggression? Now, as you hear that, you might think, well, I'm not a power holder in society. I don't have any power. But as people with resources, time, talents, and treasure, along with choice, even the smallest of our interactions, whatever front line that might be, is a context, is a choice to either spin the dial somewhere between gentleness and aggression. Considering the character of Jesus helps us to see what that choice really involves. Clothing ourselves with gentleness is choosing humility over rights, invitation over force, and forgiveness over condemnation. So first, gentleness is a choice of humility over rights. So let's have a look from verse 2 of chapter 8 of John. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And as he sat down to teach them, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. It's really important to understand that this entire scenario is an attempt to entrap Jesus. Even if John didn't tell us that they were using this question to trap him, it would be abundantly evident. Not only is this an unusual circumstance, but the dynamic duo of teachers of the law and the Pharisees well, they show a blatant disregard for the processes associated with the very laws that they quote. Even when someone's life, perhaps even Jesus' life as well, is on the line. It's true that in the law commanded by Moses that the punishment for adultery was death. However, the death penalty was rarely inflicted because the standards of proof were so high. Uh, not only were two witnesses required, but there were all sorts of criteria that needed to be met. So, for example, 
the witnesses couldn't be related. They had to be recognised as, as faithful upholders of the law. They not only had to witness the sin, but they had to witness the other witness witnessing the sin. And they also had to warn the person that the sin that they were about to commit was a capital offence. So the standard was very high and it was very rare for this punishment to be dealt out. Yet here, did you know, the witnesses are nowhere to be seen. Nor is the man. The man who had also been subject to capital punishment under the law. But the religious folk don't care. They're using their power to achieve their purpose no matter what the cost. As will become almost apparent immediately, they show no humility in this situation. Appealing to the law, but simultaneously disregarding its requirements. It's completely hypocritical. In their minds and their hearts, the end justifies the means, perhaps any means. That's a, that's a red flag for us straight away. We need to be on watch for that too. It is so easy to fall into that same trap of being so convicted of what is right that we will do almost anything to get what we have deemed as just. I, I know when I'm tired, I particularly have to watch out. I have to int intentionally be gentle because that's not my natural response but how we also need to be really on guard even when we're in the right or when we feel we have the right to certain outcomes, that we feel justified or absolved to act in any way, even if those ways are inconsistent with the gospel. If Jesus condemns the woman, she will lose her life and Jesus' message of forgiveness will be seemingly contradicted. If Jesus ignores the sin he'll be accused of failing to uphold the scriptures. It's quite the trap, so what will Jesus do? Uh, even though it appears that adultery has been committed, even though the religious power holders mean him harm and don't care about the cost, even though Jesus not only has every right, but of course he is in the right, Jesus doesn't assert those rights. He doesn't condemn the woman, nor does he cut them down to size. But instead, he approaches this entire situation with an extraordinary humility. Now, if it was me, I have to say that in this situation, it would have been so satisfying to point out the religious leader's hypocrisy in the moment. Wouldn't that be great in that moment? Like, are you guys serious? You want to quote the law of Moses to me? Well, let me tell you a few things about the requirement of the law which you quote. And while I'm at it, because I know your hearts, let me tell you a few things about some of your sins. But Jesus does none of that. Even in the face of a type of aggression that wishes him dead, even though he has every right, Jesus responds with humility. Now, there could be lots of reasons, all sorts of reasons why Jesus bends down to the ground, but I love that even at a surface level, that he's not puffing himself up, but it's almost like an embodied humility as he bends down. 
some might say, well, actually, there did seem to be times when Jesus actually showed force. He acted with some force, like in the clearing of the temple. But as we think about those, just think about two things. One, read through the Gospels and you'll see there are actually very few instances and when he takes such action. And two, don't forget he's the Son of God. If Jesus, who, is always, who always does right, is in the right, holds all rights, including the right to judge, didn't take equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, nor should we. If we are flawed, our motives are mixed. We can so often be convinced that our ends justifies any means. Therefore, we need all the more to show a willingness to set aside and lay down our rights humbly. Now, there is really no shortage of conjecture of what Jesus may have been writing on, on the ground. It's all sorts of, you know, wild ideas. Perhaps something about removing a log from one's eye. That'd be like a sneaky little thing to write on the ground as they're, they're challenging him. Uh, perhaps it was a list of, of sins that the religious folk themselves had, had committed. Perhaps the names of the people whom they had committed the very sin of which they are now accusing the woman. Or perhaps he was just doodling on the ground and just really expressing some sort of disengagement with his protagonists. We don't know. We don't know because John doesn't tell us. He didn't see the need for us to know. But what John does tell us is that Jesus did it twice. Do you notice that? When the religious folk first approached and then after as he waited for the responses. And actually, you know, whatever Jesus was, was doing, I think it's a pretty great lesson for us. That, that when we're confronted with a situation and we want to dial up the aggression, we want to ramp up the response, that one of the best things that we might do is to take a moment before we respond, that we'd set aside that longing to aggressively assert that we're in the right, that we'd take a breath, step away, you know, bend down and write something in the dirt if you really need to, but stop and ask for help from the one who humbly laid down even his right to life for you. Second, uh, gentleness is a choice of invitation over force. So let's pick up from verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Jesus' answer is extraordinarily brilliant. Uh, instead of applying force, he's actually inviting them in to see the bigger picture. Note that it's not that sin doesn't matter. He tells the woman to, to not continue in sin. No, he's inviting them to see that sin is a matter for everyone. We're all guilty. Everyone's in the same boat. Might be different sin, but it's all sin. Let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus is showing that the problem isn't with God's law, but that no one is qualified to throw the stone. Jesus is, is so gentle with these people. There are so many times, so many situations in which I can really come bounding into a situation full of force. I can be really self-righteous and, 
arrogant. But how extraordinary is it that God doesn't apply his force with us? But he ever so gently and ever so graciously deals with us, invites us in. Gentleness isn't insipid, weak, dull or ineffective. Don't, don't miss just how disarming Jesus' gentle approach is. The religious leaders go from wanting to entrap Jesus to walking away. The woman walks away from a death sentence with a whole new way to live. A few years after the tragic events of 9-11, Patrice and I were in New York and we went and visited the former site of the, the Twin Towers, Ground Zero, where there's now a memorial for those who lost their lives. And as we stood there and spent some time there, a man came along and set up a, a small card table to sell some postcards with photos of the towers that once stood in that place. What happened next really shocked us because almost as soon as he set up that table, a small crowd gathered around him, huddled around him in great anger. It was illegal to sell things there. And of course, some people were really offended by that. But before long, the force of the anger had swelled so much, had escalated, that I actually really thought that the man might be lynched. In fact, I think had he said and uttered one word, that anger would have spilled out. But instead, he said nothing. He quietly packed up his things and almost vanquished from sight and the anger dissipated. Proverbs chapter 15 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or Proverbs chapter 25. Through patience a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. So when confronted by situations, it really can be so tempting to just apply more force. In the face of quarrels or rejection or conflict or unfairness, perhaps harsh words spoken against you, we can, in the words of Chris Wright, want to respond with bluster and self-defence, with harsh and aggressive words, with angry gestures and expressions, prickles and spikes. But that's simply not the way of Jesus. Now, I can find that hard at home and at work. In my experience formerly when I worked with pretty large organisations and sometimes dealing with really complex problems, there are often times in which the preferred solution that was voiced to some sort of difficulty when encountering a problem was the request to send in a head kicker. <laughs> just send in a head kicker. Now, even the term is just so violent. At home, as a parent, at times when frustrated or tired, or frustrated and tired, it can feel so tempting just to bypass gentleness, just to shortcut and ignore gentleness altogether and just go from zero to 100 in a matter of seconds. But 
not only is that really ineffective, but it's often damaged, damaging, and always ungodly. Now, I'm not talking about a gentle perseverance or being passionate about things. Gentleness is not not addressing things. But it means when we keep dialing up the force, it means avoiding keep dialing up the force until we have a breakthrough, even if it means breaking others or breaking God's commands. In just a few weeks' time, Australians are going to have the opportunity to vote on an upcoming referendum. I'm sure you all know about it. Uh, many people, of course, are trying to weigh up what makes for a really gospel-shaped response to how to vote, and just because I'm not going to vote, I'm not going to tell people how to vote, okay? I'm not even hinting which way you should vote. I'm not going to tell you how to vote, because, you know, you can't go to some place in the New Testament and look up how to vote on the referendum on October 14, okay, 2023. You're not going to find it. There's going to be plenty of ways that the gospel and the New Testament inform us and shape our response. But the point is you've got to work it out. But what I can absolutely say and implore is that the gospel absolutely compels us to work that out and work it through with others with gentleness. We can and we ought to share convictions, faithfully discerned, to invite other people into that point of view, but not with force. Gentleness is the way. We have a responsibility to do that and an opportunity to model it. Third, gentleness is a choice of forgiveness over condemnation. Verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away at, one at a time, the one, older ones first, until Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go now, go now and leave your life of sin. How could Jesus look at this woman's sin and not condemn her? How can Jesus look at our sin and not condemn us? Because he has forged a way for both perfect love and justice to come flooding together. Through his death, he has forged a way for forgiveness. In a world in which the victor crushed their enemies, Jesus was crushed for us. That's completely countercultural today, but it was also completely cultural, countercultural back then. Uh, Tom Holland said of the ancient world that the measure of divinity was for the very greatest of the great. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself, to nail them to the rocks of a mountain or to blind and crucify them after the conquering the world. That a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, grotesque. Jesus' death looked like a grotesque failure, but it was the monumental victory of all time for sinners. Jesus' answer to the, the full force of sin and evil and all the forms of violence and failings was not to condemn us, 
nor to react towards us with righteous anger, but to take the full force of God's condemnation against sin on himself. As Jesus the King enters Jerusalem, he comes gently riding on a donkey. As Jesus the Innocent stands on trial, he gently responds. As Jesus, the Son of God, is crucified, he gently prays that his executors will be forgiven. As Jesus, the risen one, encounters his disciples, he gently invites them to believe. God is also gently inviting us. In 1 Kings, there is an extraordinary account of Elijah. Uh, Elijah, who is often a wayward prophet, yet God ever so gently deals with with him. As Elijah uh, runs away, the Lord really invites him back and invites him into an encounter with himself. Uh, in this account, Elijah had experienced under God considerable success against his enemies, but taking his eyes off the Lord, uh, Elijah fears his life and he makes a run for it. And at his very lowest point, and it's a very low point, as basically he's given up, he falls asleep. And as he falls asleep, the Lord ever so gently deals with him. The Lord gives him rest, provides him with food and with drink. But when the moment comes for Elijah to meet the Lord, he stands on the mountain waiting. And we read that a great and powerful wind came, tearing the mountains apart, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? Can you hear his gentle voice? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. When we go to God with our sin, we need not spin, cloak or mask it, but we can go openly with every confidence that we have forgiven. The Lord is gentle. When we go with our longings, we can be confident of his love. When we go with our frustrations, we can be confident of his tenderness. When we go with our pain, we can be confident of his comfort. God has been so wonderfully gentle with us. And when you go to him, you can be certain of his gentleness. When you go to him, he'll not only gently receive you, but he'll also get to work gently transforming you in the likeness of his son. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the extraordinary gentleness that you have shown to us time and time again. We thank you so much that your answer to sin was not to condemn us, but to take the full force of all sin, all that is evil, all our failings upon yourself, 
that you would carry the cost of that condemnation so that we could stand free. Lord, please help us to come to you, to put our trust in you, to rejoice in your gentleness and your gift of grace. Lord, we pray that you'd also forgive us for the times in which we really fall short of being gentle. Sometimes when we fall short a little way and sometimes when we fall short a long way. Lord, would you please help us on all of our front lines that we would show your gentleness to the world, that you would enliven our hearts and clothe us with humility, that we be gentle invitation and putting to your forgiveness as we forgive others. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to a podcast from St Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.